So as we approach the um, end of Holy Week and recall all the readings and the prophecies, and all the beautiful hymns that were sung, all the commentaries from the church fathers, the, the many uh, sermons we heard this week from the servants of this church, and all the gospel readings recounting the passion of our Lord during his final and life-saving week that he uh, showed us this week. They are all pointing to Good Friday and his final words, which he said, it is finished. So the mystery of God's saving work is complete. The problem is solved. Before this point, humanity's condition was in a pretty bad state. From Adam to this point, the human nature was corrupted when Adam and Eve sinned originally and became even more and more corrupted as time went. They began to forget about God altogether. And most of humanity deviated into worshiping idols and things of the senses, things they saw like the sun, the moon, the stars. And they utterly forgot about God in their deeds and in their faith and in their, in their prayers. Thirdly, they were in debt because of the, um, the sin of Adam and Eve committed. So they were all bound to die because of, because of sin and, and their separation of them with God who is the source of life and in whom there is no sin. So when sin entered into our nature, we separated ourselves from the source of all life. This is what St. Athanasius calls the, the divine dilemma, because what was God to do in the face of such a problem, that with humans' failed and corrupted condition, uh, with their um, corrupted nature, the fact that human beings now only look for God among the senses, and that there was this debt that human beings could not pay back. The divine dilemma. So Christ solved this with only through his incarnation. So this problem of humanity, this human condition, only had its solution in Christ's birth and, in, and especially in his death. So the human nature was recreated through the unity of his divinity with our fallen humanity. And humanity once again saw the Father through Christ's life-giving and world-changing teachings and miraculous actions that he did through, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what did Christ do? He basically had authority over nature. We saw him uh, stop storms, calm waters, uh, cast out evil spirits. He healed the blind. He recreated eyes of those who were born blind. He raised the dead, as he did for Lazarus. Uh, he changed the water to wine. He caught the fish when no one else was catching fish. Uh, walking on water, cursing the fig tree, which we learned earlier this week. Restoring the severed ear, which happened at his arrest. He um, ascended into the heavens, and of course the miracles on the cross themselves, the earthquake, the sun was darkened, the rocks were broken, the veil of the temple was torn in two. All of these show God, God's manifestation of God the Father. As we spoke about in Palm Sunday, God came when we said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We know that Christ comes to reveal the Father again once to us which is the only true source of joy and happiness in our life. So he offers then at the end this perfect sacrifice. And because he's also divine on behalf of all, this sacrifice is a benefit to everyone, not just uh, one person. At the same time, he showed himself mightier than death because, as we know, uh, he was resurrected. So St. Athanasius marks that there were two opposite marvels that took place. The first one is the sacrifice on the cross on behalf of all. And the second one is the resurrection from the dead, again on the behalf of all, as he is the first fruits of our resurrection. So the St. Athanasius says that we have no fears then. We have no fear. 
Now that the common Savior of all has died on our behalf, we who believe in Christ no longer die as men died before. And we say, in, as in, uh, noted in Corinthians chapter 15, Death is swallowed up in victory, or death, where's your sting, o, o, or death, where's your sting, O Hades, where's your victory? But though he died for the salvation of us all, why specifically the cross? Why not any other means? Why, why has the cross now become the symbol of Christianity? Why couldn't he have just died in old age on a bed, you know, many years later? So there's some thoughts on that. Firstly, you know, we know that Christ was teaching this from the very beginning among the apostles and among the prophets before him. Hundreds and thousands of years before that, God prepared humanity through the prophets on all the sacrifices and the symbols of the Old Testament that always point to the Old Testament. I mean, the, the point to the crucifixion itself. But he, basically he came to destroy death. So he let, and who was the one waving death as a weapon, fearing, like causing fear among humans? It was Satan. Death was Satan's weapon, that he was putting fear and, and dread in the hearts of all humanity. So he told the devil, as it were, devil, do your worst. Do whatever you can think of. I will allow my life to be in your hands so that when Satan did his worst, Christ can still be found victorious in the resurrection. So he allowed, at the time, this really awful way to, to die, right? Um, in shame and in pain and um, and you know we don't hear about such suffering today right but Christ willingly took this on and he allowed his enemy to choose it for him and his enemy having chosen it um, God used it as a tool and a monument of victory for us all there was a type of this in the Old Testament among all the many prophecies we read we read one of them uh, regarding David and Goliath and we know David and Goliath, even the youth know, uh, the kids know this story from Sunday school. But uh, the Bible, deep as it is, we can always dive deeper into the Bible. So David, after he knocked Goliath down with the stone, what did he do? He took the sword of his enemy and he cut off his head with it. He took Goliath's sword, which was huge by the way, and he lifted it up, the young boy David, and cut off the head of of uh, Goliath with his own weapons. So the same way our David also, Christ, um, took off, uh, you know, overthrew the devil with his own weapon which he was fearing us, which he was causing fear in us. This is why in a few hours we're going to begin again with the Apocalypse Night, reading the first part of the Apocalypse Night, which is the reading of Psalm 151. Um, it's not in the New King James Bible. For some reason it was taken out. We won't get into why it was taken out today, but uh, Suffice to say that that prophecy in Psalm 151 really points to Christ, um, but it recants kind of the, the life of David the prophet, and it's sung with a really beautiful tune. I hope you all are all there today. I'll just leave it with a little suspense so you can come later for Apocalypse Night. So this next question we all know the answer to, but hopefully we can go a little deeper into it. Why did he do this for us? Why did he do it? Because he... Did he like us? He loved us, right? That's why he did. That's why he did this for us. It wasn't easy by human standards to go through what he went through. Um, from his death and from his birth, from his birth to his death, he was acquainted with sorrow from the very beginning of his life to the end. And in the final week, um, 
we know that the New Testament Gospels account a lot of the a big portion of the Gospels are, are allotted to this Passion Week that we read through today. And we know that during our readings, we read four Gospels in, on Good Friday just because of all the sufferings he went through. Um, so it's an important milestone in, in uh, human history. Um, but it was a very difficult week. Um, we, we can say that he was betrayed by uh, humanity in general. He was betrayed. He was betrayed by his own people, uh, the, the Jewish people at the time. He was betrayed by those closest to him, his disciples. He was abandoned by them. He was spat on. He was beaten by and, and whipped by the what was then the strongest army on earth. He was mocked. He was stripped and given a crown of thorns that whose thorns sunk into the skin of his forehead. He carried the cross through the streets uphill to Golgotha and was nailed to the cross and stabbed with a spear. So why did he do this for us? At first glance, it kind of seems unworthy of God's glory, whose worship by the cherubim and the seraphim who created the universe in its spectacular and majestic form that it is today. Yet, it is worthy of him when we consider his humility and his love for us and his passion to save us. We all know the answer then. He did it because he loved us. But though we know the answer, it's one of those answers that we cannot fully comprehend. It is beyond human comprehension to know how much God loves us and how much he has passion for us. We call it passion because he doesn't just kind of want us to come take communion every Sunday. He is passionate about it. He is, and oftentimes scripture uses the analogy of him being hungry or thirsty. And I know us being in Orange County or San Diego, we haven't really suffered hunger or thirst. But if you can imagine being really hungry for something, this is how much he wanted, you know, and even that doesn't even draw a close analogy to the level of love that he has for us. It is really ineffable. It is non-comprehensible. You cannot describe it. Even if you can begin to understand it inside of you a little bit, it's far from the, any words that somebody can articulate with, with his mouth. But we do, as much as our, hands, our minds can handle, his cross and his passion show us his love. His suffering is clear, and his suffering is a very clear manifestation of his love. We know that suffering generally manifests our love, and it manifests the type of person we are. Love is invisible. It only becomes visible when we suffer or sacrifice for others. Husband to wife, wife to husband, uh, parents to children, uh, friend to friend. We know you love somebody else when you sacrifice for that somebody else. The icons in our church of Christ after the resurrection, especially the Pantocrator should, all of them don't, but they all should, show the wounds of Christ. The wounds of Christ is an eternal manifestation of His love for us. When many of the saints see visions of Christ after the resurrection, what do they describe? What is the first thing they describe? They say that they saw His wounds on His hands and His feet. We remember, for example, the story of St. Peshoy, who carried Christ and didn't really recognize He was carrying Him until what? Until He saw the wounds in the feet of Christ. And Pope Shenouda used to say that when we go to heaven, we will see those wounds forever. Those wounds will forever be in front of us as an eternal manifestation of his love for us and his 
um, and has sacrificed for us. St. Athanasius says that the cross also was done in a way where, he, his, where his arms are outstretched, calling all people to him. And he says, as Christ said himself, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. It's as if he opens his arms, waiting to hug us all in his bosom and in, and in his embrace, and not even opening his arms. He nailed his arms open so that no one can shut them and so that our, you know, we can always go to God uh, in his bosom. There's plenty of room there. Like in, I know you can't see it now, but in the Last Supper, you always see St. John, the apostle, resting his head against the bosom of, of Christ. That's where we want to be always. And we know that uh, no matter what our situation, no matter what our sins, no matter what our shortcomings and, and weaknesses, we know that God has nailed His arms open for us and that we are always welcome to come back to Him. There is plenty of room for us there in His, in his uh, embrace. So on the, cross, on the cross, Christ said, it is finished. From the very beginning though, from the very beginning in Adam and Eve, He began that work. It was only finished on the cross, but the work began way before that. He tells Eve, for example, I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, her seed with a capital S. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So his heel would be bruised, he would suffer, but in the end he would crush the head of the serpent. We also know that through the prophets, right, we have many, many examples and we can, it's beyond the scope of today's talk to really talk about the many prophecies and symbols and topologies of the Old Testament uh, that Christ did for us. But we could talk about a few. So we know about, uh, and we've read all of these as well, too, during the Holy Week in the prophecies. So we know, for example, Abraham and Isaac, how Abraham, over 100 years old, and his teenage son, around 19, were going up the mountain, and he put the wood on top of uh, his son Isaac's shoulder, and they climbed up a mountain so that on top of the mountain, Isaac would be sacrificed. And when Abraham went to tie Isaac's hands, imagine it, and a man over a hundred years old, a 19 year old, did, the question is, did Isaac willingly allow Abraham to, or can he have just pushed his, his father over a little bit and just walked down? It would have been pretty easy. So we know that Isaac willingly sacrificed himself and allowed himself to be sacrificed. So a very clear symbol there. We also read today with the Moses and the Battle of Amalek, a very clear and striking symbol where Moses was only beating the enemy when he was outstretched like this. And when his hands became tired, the Israelites lost. So they, they porched him up on a rock and held his arms up. And as, so long as his arms were out, Amalek was defeated. His enemy was defeated. Moses and the serpent, where he put a cross, a, a, a piece of wood in the shape of a cross and put a serpent on it. And whoever looked on the cross in the Old Testament there with Moses, they were healed of the, uh, the plague that, that was on them. And then, of course, David and Goliath, and of course, the, the, uh, the main prophecy, which is the Passover, where Christ commanded uh, the Israelites to uh, basically put, or, um, uh, to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts. And if you can imagine them doing it, they're doing it in the shape of a cross because the doorposts are 
you know, like that, right? So they would put the blood on the corners in the shape of a cross, and the angel of death passing by saw the blood and did not um, did not uh, have any harm happen to those people on the inside. And of course, we also read about Jonah. Again, another prophecy that was read during Holy Week. Jonah, um, if you read the story, not only was he the obvious, uh, as Christ noted, uh, a symbol of the resurrection because he stayed three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, but if you continue reading the, the book, which is a very short book, at the very end, there was a very awkward and abrupt ending where Christ, uh, where God was uh, speaking with Jonah, and and he said, Jonah, are you angry? He goes, it is, uh, Jonah responded, it is right for me to be angry even unto death. It is right for me to be angry even unto death. So God responded saying, is it right for you to be angry over, you know, the, this, wor this plant that you didn't labor for? But what about humanity? I should be equally angry even to death, to the, to the death of the cross for the sake of all of humanity, not just for Nineveh. So all of those and many other prophecies in the Old Testament, uh, we know that God has prepared uh, to this one point that we celebrate today. So the cross then should not be as a surprise when we make the sign of the cross. And if it's powerful enough to conquer enemies and to, more importantly, open the doors of paradise again, what is it that the cross cannot do? When we sign the cross before our meetings or before any exam, or before any problem or, or sudden calamity that we, we face, or before any challenge that we make the sign of the cross, we know that the sign of the cross has power, and, um, and in the name of the cross we conquer. So to those on the outside, the cross can mean contempt, reproach, weakness, curses. We know other religions, they mock our Christian symbol of monument and victory, which is the cross, but we know what it means to us. We know that it means redemption, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation between us and God with his outstretched hands um, and hope and victory and the resurrection was a seal of our victory over you know over death that is why for Christians the cross has special meaning it is a way of life for us it's not just a symbol of our faith but it is a way of life carrying the cross allows us to share in the sufferings of Christ and has great meanings to Christians so various Crosses exist in our lives. We all we all have our crosses. Some difficult, uh, some not so difficult, but we all have them in our lives. We should not always shy away from them cowardly. We should not, we should not always um, cower in front of those crosses that we bear. But we should remember that Christ suffered for us, and then that suffering gives us an eternal weight of glory over a short period of time. It gives us a greater reserve of strength once overcome, and we end up shining more greatly um, after that cross is endured. And every cross is temporary. So we shouldn't think that the cross in our lives mean abandonment. God knows that what we're going through even more than we, we do. And St. Augustine, for example, says, In patient endurance of evil, hope to be made partakers of the greater good, for so his strength is perfected in our weakness. His strength is perfected in our weakness. So with that, um, may Christ give us endurance and strength to bear our own sufferings, wh whether they are external sufferings or internal uh, emotional sufferings that we may be enduring, to the ultimate joy, hope, and power of the resurrection, which we'll be celebrating tomorrow, God willing, and glory be to God forever. Amen.
We want to thank you so much for listening to St. Basil's podcast. We hope that you have gained spiritually from our remarkable speakers, and we appreciate your support towards this podcast. St. Basil American Coptic Orthodox Church is looking to purchase a home, and we would love for you to be a part of our community. We are looking to raise funds towards this novel mission, Orthodoxy in an American Context within the San Diego area. You may donate online through our website, www.stbasil.net. That's www.stbasil.net. Or click on the link below and it will take you to our donations page. You may also mail in your contribution at the address located on our website. We thank you for any contribution and may our Lord Jesus Christ always bless your heart and home.